the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. I am John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan today. If you are not familiar with Powerline, I recommend that you check us out. We are at powerlineblog.com. But if you just Google Powerline, either one word or two, we are the first thing that will uh, that will come up. And we offer uh, fresh uh, commentary on the news uh, every day and sometimes uh, break some news. So uh, if you're not familiar with our website, Powerline, uh, please do check it out. We are delighted now to be joined by Julie Kelly. Julie, thanks for being on the program. Hey, John. Thanks for having me on. Julie, you've got a piece uh, today uh, titled Heroes and Villains of uh, 2020. This is only a three-hour show, so we're going to have to be we're going to have to be selective, <laughs> Julie. I don't know about heroes, but my... like, can we do? Can we do like an eight-part series on the villains alone? I think we could fill that easily. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know about heroes, but I'll give you a long list of villains. So let's right. let's start with that, Julie. Let's jump in and uh, and tell our listeners. Uh, let, let's start with the villains because that's probably a longer list. Who, who's on your list of the villains of 2020? Governors and mayors of both parties who continue to ignore the science, lock down segments of their of their economy, of their business sector, keep our kids out of school, turn our college campuses into police states. Those are the biggest villains of 2020. Now, it was hard to pick one, but I have to say Andrew Cuomo deserves the honor of being villain of the year. I don't care what CNN and his brother say about him or Time Magazine or the Emmy Award that he won. Um, what he did in New York by not preparing his state for this pandemic, for, um, you know, his, what the order that put infected nursing home patients back into nursing homes, infecting other nursing home residents, killing upwards of 6,000 helpless senior citizens in long-term care facilities in New York. But his boasting about what a great job that he did, even though his hospitals were already overcrowded before the virus hit New York, his state and his city acted as a super spreader for the rest of the country. Um, but yet here he is writing a book about how successful he was. And then, you know, a few weeks after the book's published, he starts shutting down parts of the state again because, of course, the virus is going to be a virus and you can't get rid of it. Um, so he is he's at the top of our dubious villains of 2020 list. Well, I agree with you, Julie, that he can kind of stand as a symbol for, you know, not only himself, but a lot of other governors, mayors and so on, who have just devastated. You know, people talk about the economy, right? And that's okay, fine. They've devastated the economy. But what we mean when we say that is they have devastated the lives 
of That's hundreds right. of millions of Americans, of, 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 of countless innocent school children, of, of senior citizens, of, of people whose lives have been just really disrupted and, and, um, and damaged by the inability to, to socialize, you know, theoretically not supposed to spend uh, Christmas with your family, although I don't know about you, Julie, but I, I violated that order. You know, so Cuomo is kind of a symbol of them all, and I think an appropriate one. But I will say, Julie, I'm coming to you from Minnesota, and our governor, Tim Walls, is a contender. Mm -hmm. You know, he's also on the list of the really villainous, villainous uh, uh, governors who who really took advantage of this this epidemic to unleash their inner fascists, is how I would put it. All right. Who Who else, Julie, is on your list of 2020 villains? Dr. Anthony Fauci is a close second to Andrew Cuomo. What he has done, what you were just talking about, um, to this country, not just to the economy, but to the lives of our children, of our business owners. I mean, there's no one who's been unscathed by the horrible advice given to us from the quote-unquote public health experts. But Anthony Fauci is at the top. Um, he's just on a nonstop ego trip publicity uh, campaign for himself. He's pivoted on every bit of advice that he's given from the very beginning, saying that this uh, would have a similar fatality rate to the flu, then testified before Congress that it would be 10 times the flu. He was against masks before he was for masks. He and Deborah Burks brought the disastrous uh, Chris Murray and Neil Ferguson models to the president at the end of March convincing him, unfortunately, to shut down the economy for another 30 days. Um, He should have been fired, as I argued in a column back in early April. He and Deborah Burke should have been sidelined by the president, removed from the coronavirus task force because it was clear they had no idea what they were talking about. But here we are now. And and just recently, John, you probably saw this. Now he's backtracking on herd immunity. You know, herd immunity, for those of us who pay attention to anything scientific, That's not pseudoscience. This is a well-accepted scientific principle that backs massive vaccinations and our own innate ability to fight off viruses and disease. All of a sudden, when people like Scott Atlas talk about herd immunity, it becomes some pseudoscientific conspiracy theory. But yet you had Anthony Fauci now this week in a CNN interview of all places saying now we need 90 to 95% herd immunity, comparing COVID to the measles, which is not even close to in terms of infection or deadliness, and sort of saying, well, I was saying early on it was 70% herd immunity. Now we need 90. I was just looking at the polls. I was sort of toying with the American people. The guy has no idea what he's talking about, but the damage he has done, and we're talking irreversible damage, especially to our kids, he will never have to pay a price for it. Uh, he, he and Cuomo, really, it was, it was, it's neck and neck who's known of the year for those two. Yeah, Fauci's admission that he has been lying to the American people and changing his tune uh, basically for political reasons is pretty stunning. But I'll tell you, Julie, I was a little bit on the fence about about Fauci until he threw out the first pitch at a baseball game. Did you see that? Number one, the guy apparently has never thrown a ball before in his life. He went about about 10. He made Barack Obama look like Sandy Koufax, okay? I don't trust a man who apparently has never in his life throwing a ball. Then number two, they cut away in the in, in the stands. It's this empty stadium. He's sitting there with two other people, I think his wife and a friend, 
and they aren't social distanced. They're sitting in adjacent seats, and they've taken their masks off, and they're happily <laughs> chatting away all by themselves in this empty baseball stadium. So obviously, all and we've seen this over and over from our alleged leaders. You know, they put out these rules, and then they immediately violate them themselves. It's it's really That's stunning. Right. And furthermore, we have to dispatch of the idea of what Anthony Fauci had on his face or what he wears routinely is nothing close to a medical mask. The idea that he put on some, you know, Washington Nationals, uh, you know, face covering made out of cheap dye cloth, probably from China, is somehow preventing the spread of coronavirus. That then and there should be a fireable offense. But, you know, he, he's, he's on a nonstop publicity tour for himself. There's no way in between his cable news hits and, you know, his glossy front page in-style magazine uh, columns and all the fawning attention he gets that he's actually looking at any of the data or science on this. He's not studying a thing. All he wants to do is keep fueling panic about coronavirus so he can keep his cable news hits and, you know, get all this attention from the ladies on The View. All right, Julie, let's keep going. Who else is on your villain list? This is kind of like Santa Claus, you know, the naughty and nice list. Let's keep going with the naughty list for 2020. The public health experts. So this would be the CDC, all the doctors and scientists who we keep getting lectured for about social distancing, using face masks, the deadliness of coronavirus, keeping the economy locked down into now we actually had a doctor um, say we need to keep everything shut down till March. So we'll have 360 days now to flatten the curve because that's when it actually started. They have conducted themselves so poorly and we really need to take a look at our scientific community, how, how hyper-partisan they are, the danger that they pose to getting the truth and reality and real science to the American people, the trust that they have completely decimated, especially this year, completely burned their reputation. But then it was funny, John, all of a sudden, as you recall over the summer, social distancing wasn't a thing because social justice was more important than social distancing. So the same people who were lecturing us to shut down bars and restaurants, by the way, no science to back that up, they were perfectly fine with thousands of people burning down cities and so-called peacefully protesting after uh, George Floyd's killing. And so that exposed their hypocrisy, just like we've seen the hypocrisy of governors and mayors doing the same thing. It's all based on politics, but yet they show no remorse for the economic, personal, professional damage that they've inflicted on nearly every other American. You know, if there's a silver lining to this whole COVID fiasco, it may be that Americans have learned not to put their faith in alleged experts. I mean, we've seen the, starting with the models. I mean, we could talk about that all, all day, right, Julie? But but I think one maybe a positive outcome is that most people have figured out that the experts, uh, in many cases, don't know a lot more than than the rest of us. We're up against a break here, Julie, and we're going to be back with more with uh, Julie Kelly after these messages. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan today. And uh, we are talking with Julie Kelly, 
senior contributor for American Greatness and the author of Disloyal Opposition, How the Never Trump Right Tried and Failed to Take Down the President. Julie, we've been talking about your column, which appeared just today, about heroes and villains of 2020. It's kind of like Santa's naughty and nice list. And before the break, we were talking about some villains. How about the heroes? Who have you got listed as heroes of 2020? Well, the antidote to Andrew Cuomo this year is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Um, I'm actually in Florida right now. What he has done, taking up, you know, Andrew Cuomo is just swooned over by the press, and Ron DeSantis continues to be vilified by the national news media and Democrats, even though the death rate here in Florida is half of what it was in New York and New Jersey. Businesses are open. Businesses are hiring. Um, you see help wanted signs at all the restaurants and little shops down here. People and businesses are flocking to Florida. Um, and so Ron DeSantis has really done a good job. He was prepared early on. Of course, he has a high population percentage of elderly residents. He was prepared early on. He had extra hospitals set up. Um, then he had extra test sites. So, But he's really taken a beating. Um, but you know, he's showing that we can really keep the economy open. Kids are in school here. You can have a normal life, but also be prepared to protect the vulnerable and deal with, you know, sudden spikes, which they saw over the summer. So I have him as a top hero. I also think that he is one of the top contenders for uh, 2024 for Republican nominee for president. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Julie. I just spent four days in Florida, and my experience was the same as yours. I mean, Florida is open. It's happy. It's a, it's a, yeah, things are hopping, happy. you know, and, and it's such a contrast to my home state of Minnesota. It's just painful. I would add to Julie, another hero in the same vein as, as Ron DeSantis is Christy Noem, the governor of South Dakota, yeah. who, who took a principled position from the beginning that she had no constitutional authority to start issuing executive orders, uh, dictating every detail of people's lives uh, and, and, and didn't do so. And has been just reviled by uh, the Washington Post, the Associated Press, you know, all these left wing uh, outlets, but has really stood tall on behalf of freedom. So there have been some governors, at least, that uh, haven't gone with the the, the herd mentality. Who who else, Julie, is... uh, yeah, she made an honorable mention. She And I, I really am a fan of hers. I think she has a great political future. But, of course, Ron DeSantis is dealing with a state of 24 million people and just is dealing with other issues than, say, than a Governor Noam, who I, I do mention her. But, uh, you know, what she's taken on, I think, is was a, was a far bigger challenge than what she did. Um, but I, I think she's been super tough from the beginning. I appreciate what she's done. Um my other hero is Dr. Scott Atlas. Again, the the antidote to Anthony Fauci. I'll tell you, if Scott Atlas had been on the coronavirus task force back in February, March, we would be looking at a completely different country, a completely different world right now. All of his common sense approaches to dealing with this virus, uh, we should have done from the beginning. I wish he would have had Trump's ear. Uh, Trump brought him onto the coronavirus task force in August, and he left after his 90-day service. But this guy also has been completely savaged and vilified by the media, by Democrats. He had a bunch of his Stanford colleagues write a letter denouncing him because he is opposed to these punitive, ineffective lockdowns in these states. Um, And so... 
but he really has had such a compassionate uh, approach to the side effects of these last sounds. He told, I've interviewed him a few times. He told me he gets thousands of emails every week from people around the world thanking him for his work and begging him to try to lift these lockdowns because of what they're doing. I mean, they're killing people. More people dying of that probably than coronavirus. So um, he's a hero. I think history will be much kinder to him than the so-called experts in the media are, are treating him right now. Well, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And, and I'm sure you've seen a lot of the same data that I have, Julie. And, you know, people have created charts that show um, coronavirus cases, new cases week by week over a period of now extending to the better part of a year, obviously. And you can do this for states. You can do it for countries. You can do it for localities. And I've seen dozens of these charts. And then, and then you, you draw a line on the chart where a, a, a lockdown order went into effect or you draw a line where a mask mandate went into effect. And, 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 and there's no impact. You, know, you look at dozens of charts like this and you say, well, where is the beneficial impact of the shutdown? Where is the beneficial impact of the mask mandate? You cannot find it. In my state, like many states, mask mandate went into effect statewide. And about three weeks later, Zoom, coronavirus cases took off like a rocket. And so, you know, there, there's no science behind this. There's no empirical data behind this. There's this totally faith-based you know, clinging to, to the assumption that things like shutdowns and mask mandates must help to stop the disease, even though the evidence, I think, clearly indicates that they don't. All of this is so counterproductive because now that we have the data, and any parent will tell you this, where does a virus spread? In your house. The biggest vector for transmission of this disease is in your household. We all know people whose families all got coronavirus, varying different uh, symptoms, or couples. The biggest infection is between couples. And so the idea that now we're locking people in their homes um, and that is causing these big spikes instead of, there was a, a great study that just came out um, that showed asymptomatic spread is not a thing. They, it's basically zero that they could tie to asymptomatic spread, which of course is the rationale for the face mask, but also the spread in households spiked after social distancing measures versus before, because people were getting out and about. When you're stuck in the same household, especially a small one, clustered together, if you have a big family, for days or weeks on end, you're gonna someone's gonna pick up this virus and they're gonna spread it in the household. That's why we're seeing these spikes. And so none of it makes sense. None of it is tied to data or science. None of it's tied to compassion or common sense. And so, you know, lockdowns are gonna be the big battle of 2021. Now we're armed with a lot of good science and studies and we need to get that to the American people so they can start making better decisions. You know, Julie, one of the appalling things we've seen lately, in my view, is more and more people talking about lockdowns and mask mandates as a new normal uh, and, and saying, well, even after 70 percent of the population or whatever has either had the disease or been vaccinated against it, we're still going to lock down. We're still going to have mask mandates. I, I, what, do you, what do you think about that? I think it's from people who have nothing else to say. They don't really want to deal with the facts of this. They don't want to admit that they were wrong in the beginning. You have someone like Joe Biden, who now is going to demand, what, a 100-day mask, mask mandate? Where's the science on that? There's no science that says a 100-day national mask mandate is going to stop a virus because there's no such thing as stopping a virus. I think in human history or recent history, we've eradicated two or three viruses, but that's after 
global vaccination um, for decades. And so this virus is not going away. It's mutating like viruses do. We now know it's only fatal or lethal to a very small um, uh, percentage of the population. Julie Kelly, thank you for being on the Dan Proft Show. And we will be right back after these messages. Is it any wonder? Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Uh, We are joined now by... Dr. Joel Zinberg, a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute in Washington and an associate clinical professor of surgery at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. Dr. Zinberg, thanks for being on the Dan Proft Show. My pleasure. Doctor, we've had a tough year in 2020. I think just about anybody would agree. And, uh, and, and I'm hearing a fair amount of pessimism still in the air, notwithstanding the new vaccines and, and, and so forth. You've got a piece uh, in um, City Journal that takes a, a, a more positive view. It's titled A Path to Better Days. Uh, why do you see uh, better days before us? Well, I see better days before us because we've endured, I think, the worst of the pandemic. We're about to turn the corner with the new vaccines. Uh, and all indications are that these vaccines are highly effective They have very limited and relatively mild side effects. Uh, And we also, there's the distinct possibility that an awful lot of people have been infected by the virus, may not even know they were infected, but have uh, formed antibodies, are probably immune for some indeterminate period of time, probably on the order of six months or more. Uh, And we may be closer to uh, achieving herd immunity, which is when the population has adequate immunity, whether they've acquired it naturally or by vaccination, so that the pandemic is drawn to a halt. Doctor, let's pause on that for a moment. I think a a lot of people understand this, but but maybe a lot don't. And as as I understand it, herd immunity is basically what stops diseases, right? I mean, diseases spread until they run out of, of, of people to spread two or at least the rate declines is that is that basically correct that's more or less correct it's it's for the communicable diseases and when uh you know one individual can pass on the disease to other individuals uh, and once you reach a stage where uh, they're passing on the disease to less than one additional individual that usually spells the end of a pandemic and, and as I understand it, doctor, you correct me if I'm wrong here, but as I understand it, the whole point of vaccination is to mimic having had the disease. So, so generally speaking, with viruses and I think some other diseases, communicable diseases as well, if you, if you have the disease, you develop antibodies to it and it protects you from getting it again for some period of time. And a vaccination basically uh, mimics that by by. Uh, by, by prompting the creation of those same antibodies in the, in the body. Is that, is that basically correct? 
That is correct. And, uh, you know, it's not merely antibodies. There are other uh, avenues that our body has to for uh, immunity. There are other cells called T cells that have a memory, and they jump in when uh, you're exposed to the virus at a later date. Uh, but, in fact, vaccination is to mimic the natural process. And, in fact, for most diseases, the natural infection gives you better immunity, a better immune response than vaccination. So, you know, if if we indeed have more people, many more people infected uh, than we know, and the CDC has estimated that about eight times as many people uh, as we have confirmed cases may have been exposed, uh, then we may have an awful lot more people who are actually immune than than uh, we know of. Another important question is how long does the immunity last? And I mean, there are some diseases, I think measles, for example, where if you've had it once, you've, you're done with it. <laughs> you're never going to have it. The immunity is lifelong, I think. And uh, But I think that varies from disease to disease and from vaccine to vaccine. Is, is that right? It, it does. It does. No one knows the answer either for the natural infection with the, the virus that causes COVID-19 or for the vaccination. Uh, we do know from some studies that it appears that it's at least several months long with the natural infection. And we also know that if you look at similar coronaviruses, this is the uh, class of viruses that uh, the, the uh, COVID-19 virus belongs to, uh, and if you look particularly at uh, the earlier viruses that cause SARS and MERS, uh, that the it, it's in multiple months, maybe even years long, that you have immunity and antibodies. So uh, there's reason to think that you know most of the people who've been exposed are uh, probably still immune at this point. And, you know, if their, if their immunity lapses in a year from now, those folks can get vaccinated at that point. But at the moment, they're probably still immune. All right, we will be back with more with Dr. Joel Zinberg after this. The Dan Proft Show. We are back on the Dan Proft Show, and we are talking with Dr. Joel Zinberg about his piece at City Journal called A Path to Better Days. And, Doctor, staying with the theme here of uh, optimism, at least relatively speaking, uh, one point that you make in this piece is that the idea, which I think is pretty widespread for political reasons, that the United States has performed poorly by international standards with respect to the coronavirus is, is really not true at all. Right. We have a, a large number of deaths, uh, the largest number uh, of any country in the world. However, we are one of the larger countries in the world, so the right way to really look at that is deaths per capita or deaths per 100,000 population, for example. So if you look at U.S. deaths per 100,000 population, we're actually less than many European countries like Belgium, Italy, and Spain, and we're roughly in line with the United Kingdom, Czech Republic, France, 
And then when you look at countries like Sweden, which has been, you know, which is about a 10 million population uh, and has been relentlessly criticized for not taking adequate measures to limit infections, you find that they actually have only about four-fifths as many deaths per capita as we have. So, uh, you know, we're really not doing that much worse than, than the rest of the world. And, and I would also caution people that we have a much better system of keeping track of the deaths. You know, I, I think you'd be foolhardy to suggest that Russia or Iran uh, have as few deaths as they claim because they're just not, or China, they're just not reporting it. No, I think that's right. And, and you know, diseases spread. It's, it's what they do. And, and I think what we're seeing is a kind of convergence, right? I mean, early on, it was, it was Italy and Spain getting hammered and everybody else looking good by comparison. But I think what we've seen worldwide and we're also seeing among the American states is that it hits some places earlier than others, but the disease spreads, and uh, and the results seem to be converging to be similar, really regardless of the alleged uh, mitigation measures that get undertaken. Right. I mean, you, you, early on, the Northeast, particularly New York City area and New Jersey, uh, those were especially hard hit. Uh, they had travelers coming from overseas. They're densely populated. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, of transportation hubs within that area and a lot of commuting between different cities in the area for business reasons. But now the, the disease is spreading around the country, spreading to the Midwest, but to the West it's spread into rural areas that were spared initially. Uh, and, and it's very similar to what we were just talking about with uh, the different countries. You know, a, a city like New York, where Governor Cuomo is, is trying to show everyone how tough he is, has, you know, the second highest number of deaths per capita in the country. Uh, and it's edged out only by New Jersey, whereas a, a state like Florida, which has been criticized for having too few restrictions and for imposing them too late and for opening up too soon, has about half as many deaths uh, per capita as New Jersey. So one of the things that, that uh, we can do uh, to, to slow down the spread of the virus and ultimately, I, I think, defeat the virus, you correct me if I'm wrong there, is, is get vaccinations. And, you know, if enough people are vaccinated, that leads to what's called herd immunity. And that's eventually what 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 stops the disease from spreading. And there's some concern about that, doctor, because at least poll data suggests that there is a growing number of Americans who who don't want to get the vaccine. Right. Well, you know, look, this happens to and I've written about this in other pieces. You know, Americans don't necessarily want to take vaccines. And on an annual basis, only less than half of the country gets the flu vaccine. So, and, and the people are concerned about it for basically two reasons. They're concerned either about the safety of the vaccine or about the, the need for and effectiveness of the vaccine. And, and those are concerns that early on were shared uh, when people were asked about the COVID-19 vaccine. And, and unfortunately, the situation only got worse because there was a lot of uh, criticism and speculation that drug makers uh, and the uh, Trump administration were moving too fast to approve a vaccine. And, and frankly, I think much of that was politically motivated because, uh, you know, certainly uh, the Biden campaign and scientists who were allied with that campaign uh, and other politicians like uh, New York's Governor Cuomo uh, fed into that. And I think they, it, the polling data was pretty clear that uh, confidence in the vaccine actually decreased from May to September of this year. 
So there is some concern that not enough people will willingly be vaccinated. Well, I think both Joe Biden and Kamala Harris said that they were contemplating not getting the the, the vaccine uh, because of their lack of confidence in the in the uh, Trump administration, which which I think is really reprehensible. Right. Well, I mean, to to his credit, I think uh, President-elect Biden did get vaccinated. Uh, but of course, you know, he only did that after he safely won the election. So, uh, you know, I, I think there's enough blame to go around there. But I do think that this became a, a partisan issue uh, and, and it really, it really had deleterious effects in, in undermining confidence in the vaccine effort, which has been, frankly, one of the most remarkable achievements, uh, both of the free market and of public-private partnerships. I think that's right. Dr. Zinberg, we've only got about a minute and a half left. And, and the last thing I want to ask you about is is some of what uh, Joe Biden and his people have been have been tossing out there uh, for the incoming administration, including talk of a national mask mandate and, and a hundred day shutdown nationwide. What what do you make of that? Well, look, incoming Biden administration has published a covid plan got a lot of promises, but it's, you know, even though it's lengthy and detailed, it's really quite short on details. And many of the things they're proposing uh, have actually already been implemented by the Trump administration and, and other things that they've been proposing, like uh, investing in infrastructure and encouraging union organizing and collective bargaining and fighting climate change really have absolutely nothing to do with the pandemic. Uh, so vis-a-vis a mask mandate, the uh, Biden administration, uh, President-elect Biden was first proposing that. Now he's pulled back a bit and talked about a, a hundred days of mask wearing. The fact of the matter is there's no legal authority for the federal government to order masks. That has to be done at the state and local level. Uh, so, you know, it remains to be seen exactly what the Biden administration will do on this front. Yeah, doctor, you and I both attended law school and learned there that uh, the police powers reside with the states, not with the federal government. <laughs> and, uh, and I guess Correct. we're seeing we're seeing that illustrated here in the response to the pandemic. Dr. Joel Zinberg, thank you so much for being on the Dan Prof Show. Show.com. We're back on the Dan Proft Show. You know, if there is a single proposition that is an article of faith uh, among leftists today here in the United States and probably around the world, it is that America is a uh, racist, uh, xenophobic, and above all, white supremacist country. And that white supremacism is really the founding principle, going back to, I guess, 1776, if you listen to the New York Times, that white supremacy is what the United States of America is all about. And suppressing people of other races is uh, systemic, as they put it, in this country. And the left is like this, of course. They, they, they think that facts are completely unnecessary. Data is extraneous. Uh, they believe things really for religious reasons, uh, not empirical reasons. And this is a great example because if you look at the data 
which comes from the Census Bureau, what you find is that whites actually aren't doing particularly well in America. I've been following this for some years. A few years ago, I wrote about it on Powerline. At that time, white Americans were number 21 among ethnic groups. Uh, according to the Census Bureau, in median household income. Now, which is the most fundamental measure that you can use. I mean, if you're going to be a white supremacist, where is that going to manifest itself more than anywhere else? And, and where are we going to see the fruits of all this alleged white supremacy, all this racism? In income. If it doesn't show up in income, you know, what is it? It's nothing. And, and so when I first started looking at the data, uh, white Americans ranked 21st among ethnic groups. Uh, and then when the 2018 Census Bureau data came out, we were number 17. The number of groups are very, very close clustered there. And I'm looking now at a piece by Ray Aurora in uh, Quillette, which updates this through the 2019 uh, census. And the number one ethnic group in America in terms of household income, median income, is Indian Americans, with household incomes almost double those of whites. And that's not a big surprise. But there's a lot of others, Taiwanese, Filipinos, Indonesians, Pakistanis. Pakistani Americans, on the average, earn more than whites. Iranians, Lebanese, Chinese, Japanese, Turkish, Israeli Americans, Korean Americans, Syrian Americans, Vietnamese Americans, significantly out-earned whites on the average. Think about that. The refugees that came over after the Vietnam War doing better on average now than white Americans. And some African groups, Nigerian Americans, Ghanaian Americans, uh, on average earn more than white Americans. And it's really astonishing that in the face of basic facts like this, liberals can yammer on and on and on about systemic racism and about white supremacy, and about xenophobia. What on earth are they talking about? Is there another country, has there ever been another country anywhere in the world that is so welcoming to people from other, other geographic areas, other races, other cultures, that after a few years in, in the United States, most of them are now out-earning whites? I mean, it's an astonishing fact, and it's a fact that every American ought to know but I suspect very few Americans actually do know because it's not the story that our press and our liberals uh, want to tell. Well, that brings this hour to close. We will be back with more on the Dan Proft Show after these messages. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline filling in for Dan tonight. And we are joined now by Jeffrey Lord, contributing editor to The American Spectator, former aide to Ronald Reagan and Jack Kemp, former CNN commentator, and the author of Swamp Wars, Donald Trump and the New American Populism versus the Old Order. Jeffrey, thanks for being on the program. Thanks, John. Great to be here. Happy sure. New Year. Well, Happy New Year to you. Uh, Jeffrey, uh, you've got a piece in the in the Spectator, which is titled um, "The Media Abandons Democracy," which is which is a provocative premise, but I'm, I'm afraid all too true. Yeah, it, it, it just is remarkable to me. Uh, there are uh, millions of Americans who feel that this election, what has been flat out stolen, 
and that irrespective of the candidates, this is an assault on American democracy um, and the sacredness of an election. And if we're ever going to have confidence in an election again, this has to be fixed pronto right now. And there seems to be no enthusiasm for doing this. As a matter of fact, uh, of all places, the New York Post ran a a front page headline yesterday, uh, editorial saying, stop the insanity and pleading with the president to stop doing this and all this kind of thing. Uh, I would say exactly the opposite. The president needs to fight uh, because the integrity of the election system is everything here. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, you in your in your piece here in the Spectator, you quote uh, Charles Blow, who's just you know a hideous, a hideous uh, <laughs> guy. But 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 he stands for many because a lot of people on the left have been making the same argument. He talks about uh, the idea that Trump's effort to overturn the result of the election, that is, in Trump's view, to correct uh, the voter fraud that that occurred, uh, is is an attempt. I'm quoting him here is nothing short of an attempt at a bloodless coup and is a threat to American democracy. We hear this over and over again. And yet the reality is that what Trump has done is to go to the courts exactly as Al Gore did in, in 2000. And and try to make his case that in in a number of states the the certified election results are are wrong on account of fraud and irregularities, and I have a very hard time understanding how that's in any way uh, incompatible with democracy. Well, that's exactly right. Uh, Charles is a former <laughs> a former CNN colleague, and to say he's uh, on the left would be to understate things. This is a real problem, and I would suggest to Charles and others that the bloodless coup is the, the the theft, the attempted theft of the election. Um, and I, to give you an example of how this works, I, I am, uh, I live in Pennsylvania. And uh, alas, I'm sorry to say, my home state of Pennsylvania has an absolutely terrible, terrible record of uh, election theft. Uh, in May of this very year, 2020, the U.S. Attorney for uh, the Eastern District of Pennsylvania indicted a Democrat judge of elections in Philadelphia, and what was he indicted for? In three different elections, he stood next to a voting machine in Philadelphia, and when people were not looking, was going ka-ching, 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 ringing up votes for uh, various candidates for whom he was paid by a former Democratic congressman who had also gotten in trouble and uh, was paying this guy to uh, rack up the votes for get this, judicial candidates. Uh, This is the kind of thing that has gone on routinely in Pennsylvania. And here we are with this presidential election, and I have not the slightest doubt it has gone on again. Well, Philadelphia in particular has been notorious as a home of voter fraud for a long time. But once again, Jeffrey, we live in this world gone mad, where according to it's not just the left, but the establishment, as you mentioned, even the New York Post, you know, where, where, where voter fraud is not a threat to democracy, but, but making a case in the courts about voter fraud, fraud is. I mean, this is completely topsy-turvy. Yes, it is. And, you know, one of the interesting things, Sean, that I think Donald Trump has brought out here is uh, the role of the establishment. Uh, and it's not just in Washington and the bureaucracy, it's in education, the law, religion, organized religion, Hollywood, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There really is an establishment, and they really do believe they have, you know, a God-given right to run things. 
And, uh, you know, what's going on with this election is the same thing that went on uh, with the 2016 and, you know, the FBI and Peter Strzok and Lisa Page and all this kind of thing. It all stems from the same attitude that these people are smarter and uh, more deserving than everybody else in America. They have contempt for the American people in many ways. And uh, they're going to run things. And, and uh, what the president has done is really illustrate <laughs> how serious a threat this is. Well, your point, I think, is very well taken. So, so in 2016, we had the FBI, the CIA, et cetera, uh, conspiring to, to swing that election to Hillary Clinton. And then when she lost, conspiring to undermine the uh, incoming Trump administration. We've all learned about that over the last four years. But when has the New York Times or CNN ever said, well, that was a threat to democracy? I mean, how about the Russia collusion hoax? That's the biggest threat yeah. to democracy that we've seen, certainly in my lifetime. Well, that's 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 right. And I mean, I just have to laugh when uh, I, I see particularly on, on CNN, when I see them going after the president and, uh, you know, he lies, he lies, he lies. Well, what in heaven's name do they think the Trump-Russia collusion thing was? I mean, that was a lie, which they then used a uh, special prosecutor to investigate. And he came up with nothing. Of course. I mean, the idea that Donald Trump was an agent of the Russians was just ridiculous on its face. But yet they spent all of this time and money uh, pursuing it. And this is part and parcel of how these people operate. And as I say, I think one of President Trump's lasting contributions uh, is is that he unearthed all of this sort of thing and pulled the mask off, if you will, uh, of these people. And uh, American politics will not be the same again. Well, I hope not. In, in your piece here, Jeffrey, uh, in the American Spectator, uh, you 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 talk about uh, a monologue by uh, Mark Levin uh, of of right. Rock Radio, uh, and you you mentioned the establishment a couple of minutes ago. He refers to it as a kind of iron box. Uh, talk about that a bit, if yes. you would. Yeah, <clears throat> what what Mark uh, says, and I, I have great respect for Mark. I've known him for about thirty years. We worked together for President Reagan. Um, what he said is. We have big tech, we have big media, uh, and the Democratic Party and the bureaucracy. And they all work hand in hand, and they all feed off each other, and they all empower each other. Then you have, uh, on the other side, we the people, as he calls it, and, and says in this case we had a representative for we the people called Donald Trump, the president of the United States. And he says that the iron box has done everything it can to destroy him and to destroy his his administration. And that is absolutely correct. I mean, the, the, the combination of big media, the CNNs and MSNBCs, the New York Times, the Washington Post, et cetera, combining with big tech, which made sure, for example, in that, speaking of the New York Post, the New York Post story about Hunter Biden's laptop, which was seriously good investigative journalism. And the response from Twitter was to ban it and ban the New York Post so that the word would not get out. I mean, that's that's dangerous stuff here. Yeah, and again, you Mark want to talk about... Exactly right. Yeah, you want to talk about threats to democracy. How about that one? I mean, you know, one thing that's extraordinary to me, we're talking with Jeffrey Lord, one thing that's extraordinary to me, Jeffrey, is that despite everything that you just ticked off, you know, uh, big tech, big media, the, the universities, uh, uh, the, 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 the federal bureaucracy, uh, all of the forces arrayed against President Trump, he still would have gotten reelected if it hadn't been for the coronavirus and the and the government-induced yeah. hysteria over the coronavirus. 
Yes, I think that is exactly right. And I will say, I think people on the other side, uh, remember the old Rahm Emanuel saying that uh, never let a crisis go to waste. And I think these people looked at the virus as a way to to take the election uh, by using it, by uh, you know locking people down, the mass mail ballots and all of this kind of nonsense. Uh, I think that they really took advantage of this here, and, and that is going to be a continuing problem, and, and something has to be done, no matter what happens here on January 6th. And Jeffrey, we've got under a minute remaining, but I want to circle back to where yeah. we started, because you just made that connection. One of the things they did was to use the coronavirus as an excuse to enable mail-in voting on a scale that's never been seen before, something over 100 million mail-in votes being cast, rife with fraud. We'll never know how many of those, those votes were fraudulent, because there's really, after the fact, in many cases, it's impossible to figure it out. But isn't this something that we've got to address if we're going to preserve any faith in our, in our democracy? Absolutely. I mean, I think this should be the first and last and only time. All right, Jeffrey Lord, thank you so much for being on the Dan Proft Show. We'll be back with more after these messages. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. In this segment, I want to talk a little bit about a story that you likely have heard about. Um, it's been in the news the last uh, oh, day or two, and it's mostly kind of entertaining, and I think it's, it's provoked more laughter than anything else, but I think there's a, there's a serious uh, moral uh, to it, and, and that is the, the story of Hilaria Baldwin. Before this story broke, I was vaguely aware of the existence of somebody allegedly named Hilaria Baldwin, only because I sometimes read the Daily Mail, which is one of the most popular news sites in the in the world. But there's a lot of times when you can get uh, news from the Daily Mail that's very difficult to get from American newspapers. And so I'll sometimes scan the Daily Mail, and they've got a ton of celebrity coverage and that's how I've heard of some of these people who are famous for for no reason in particular and uh, Hilaria Baldwin is in that category she's married to Alec Baldwin who's one of a set of uh, brothers who are in show business and Alec Baldwin as I understand it is on Saturday night live I personally have not watched Saturday night live since I don't know I'm guessing 1976 1977 uh, somewhere in there I have not kept up with that program, which uh, even then I found rather rather tedious. But Alec Baldwin, I, I, I take it, is the guy on Saturday Night Live who imitates uh, Donald Trump. And so they've been just massively campaigning against Trump for the last four years. And Hilaria Baldwin is uh, Alec Baldwin's wife. And apparently she's a major presence on, on social media and the like. And so, and so, who is Hilaria Baldwin? Well, well, her official bio uh, says that she is from Spain and was born, I think uh, it alleges, in Mallorca, Spain, which is an island, I believe, part of the Balearic Islands, if I'm not mistaken. And and um, and so, and so, uh, her persona revolves all around being Spanish and being from from Spain and being a, a foreigner. 
and and she speaks when she's interviewed um, in the press, which which she is for some reason, uh, with a with a kind of totally bogus uh, Spanish accent. And there's a very funny video clip which you're not going to play, but I want I want to just refer to it. She was on the Today Show, which is you know a big network TV show, and why they're having her on it, I have no idea. Uh, a woman of no apparent accomplishment, but as I say, a, a celebrity. And so she's on the Today Show, and she's talking about cooking. And and she's talking in this completely fake Spanish accent. And she says, we have very few ingredients. We have, we have tomatoes. We have, um, how you say in English, cucumbers. <laughs> how you say in English, cucumbers. <laughs> Well, well, it just I think it was day before yesterday, somebody on Twitter uh, unloaded on Hilaria Baldwin and revealed the fact, which she has now acknowledged, that she's not from Spain. She has nothing to do with Spain, except I think her parents, uh, following their own retirement, I think they may have moved to Spain or at least have a have a home in Spain. But she's actually from Massachusetts. Her name is not Hilaria. It is Hillary Hayward Dash Thomas. Her father uh, is a is a lawyer or was a lawyer in in Boston. Her her mother was a doctor. Uh, she was on staff at Massachusetts General Hospital, one of the most renowned hospitals in the country, and I believe was also on the faculty of the Harvard Medical School. And uh, Hillary, <laughs> she, to use her real name, uh, went to some you know prep school in in Boston. So. So this this identity as a Spanish uh, person and a Spanish speaking person, which uh, Hillary uh, Baldwin adopted, is is a complete fake. And you know she has she has dark hair. <laughs> you know I guess I guess, you know Spaniards are white after all. And so apparently for years nobody has questioned that she is a, a Spanish uh, young woman. Uh, from uh, Mallorca, an island actually in the Mediterranean. And it's really, it, it, it's an entertaining story, uh, and it's frankly comical. You know, when you when you listen to her on the Today Show, uh, how you say in English, cucumbers, you know, <laughs> you just, you know, you can't help but laugh. And of course, this woman is immense, immensely wealthy, right? Her her husband, you know, she she's an ambitious young woman. She married this rather famous actor who makes, I don't know how many millions of dollars on television, uh, ridiculing Donald Trump, which is, of course, a very lucrative, uh, lucrative gig if you're on on network uh, TV. And and Hillary herself is a apparently big on social media, Instagram, and 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 the like. But it's 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 just one more in a long series of instances where where people uh, believe it to be to their advantage, and I think it probably is to their advantage. Uh, to pretend to be something uh, exotic, uh, to pretend not. To be white, to pretend not to be American, and we had the with the incident of Rachel Adolazal, who was very active in the NAACP uh, as an alleged um, uh, black woman, became president of her local NAACP chapter in in Washington State, and and reported herself as as the victim of multiple racial. Hate crimes, and of course she turned out to be completely white. I mean, the whole uh, uh, pretense that she was she was African American was was totally fabricated. Probably the most famous case like this is, is Elizabeth Warren, 
who found it to her advantage as an academic trying to work her way up the ladder. And she did come from relatively uh, modest origins, unlike uh, Hillary uh, Hillary Baldwin, who came from, you know, the, the meritocratic elite uh, in uh, Boston, Massachusetts. Elizabeth Warren really did come from rather humble origins. And so it really was useful to her to pretend to be an Indian, which she did for decades. And of course, Harvard Law School proudly announced that it was hiring its first ever Native American faculty member, Elizabeth Warren. And and it, and it turned out to be a, uh, a complete fraud. We've seen many other instances of this. And, and it strikes me as, as very revealing that that in, in a number of, of areas, we, we see it in, in show business as with uh, in social media, as with Hillary Baldwin, we see it in, in academia and then politics, as with Elizabeth Warren. And we see it in the realm of activism, as with Rachel Dolezal. We've seen it in other areas as well. The truth is that notwithstanding all of the yammering about, about America being a white supremacist country and being xenophobic, blah, 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 the reality is that it is helpful to get ahead. If you're a member of a minority group, it is helpful to be an American Indian. It is helpful to be black. It is helpful to be an alleged an alleged immigrant, even if it's uh, from a white country like Spain, and to speak with a completely fake accident, as uh, so-called Hilaria Baldwin did um, did for years, impersonating this this more exotic uh, character. And I think it's. It's 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 really revealing that America is such an open and welcoming country that these people are not wrong in believing that it is helpful to them in their careers and maybe in their personal lives to pretend that they have origins that are not white, uh, that are not American, that are not mainstream, but are uh, minority in some fashion or exotic. Uh, in some fashion. And in a kind of a perverse way, uh, this really is, I think, a tribute to uh, America and the openness and, and fairness of our society. We'll be back with more after these messages on The Dan Prof Show. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. This is The Dan Proft Show. We're pleased to be joined again by our friend KT McFarland. KT, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. You absolutely have the best high-level show of anybody in the country. On the Salem Radio Network. Here we go. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We are joined now by Matt Mayer, president of OpportunityOhio.org and a contributor to The Spectator. Matt, thanks for being on The Dan Proft Show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Matt, I want to start out uh, talking about a piece that you have got um, at The Spectator, which is uh, titled uh, Seven Ohio Counties Show Why Trump Lost as Republicans Won. What are those counties, and and tell us why you find them significant. Yeah, so if you look at... uh, Essentially, Troy Balderson is the congressman uh, in the 12th District of Ohio, and it's a it's an interesting district because it it starts in Franklin County, which is where Columbus is, you know, big city, and then it 
peels out into the northeast into the suburban counties of Delaware and Licking. And then it keeps going east into, you know, uh, what we consider to be exurban and then rural counties of Marion, Morrow, Muskingum and Richland. Um, so there are seven counties total, uh, Franklin, Delaware, Licking, Marion, Morrow, Muskingum and Richland. And those counties give you kind of a good brushstroke of urban to rural voters uh, in them. And, and, and so in terms of the 2020 election results, what, what do you see in those Ohio counties? Yeah, so what you end up seeing is is Trump underperformed in the suburban counties of Delaware, Franklin, and Licking, and then as he gets closer to rural counties, he starts you know doing what you would expect him to do, which is to outperform the down ticket votes. Um, and so in the three you know suburban urban counties, you know he he underperforms, and at the at the same time, Joe Biden overperforms. He beats the congressional candidates in those in those counties, and he did that in all seven counties. So Joe Biden overperformed in all seven counties, whereas Trump uh, underperformed in the three essentially big ones uh, where the, the heavy voter totals come from. And then, you know, he got to his normal position of, of outperforming the congressional candidates in the remaining counties. Um, and, and so what you see there, that's the way I interpret that, frankly. Uh, I live in one of the counties uh, in Franklin uh, where it happened is that you know, it's, it's what we've seen by, you know, by across the country, which is a, a lot of voters like the Trump agenda and a smaller subset didn't like the Trump persona. And so what you saw is Republicans did really well uh, down ticket as Trump suffered a bit. Uh, and some of those voters moved to Biden, not be think as a pro Biden vote, but really as an anti Trump vote. You know, I live in Minnesota, Matt. We saw exactly the same thing here. Uh, Trump yeah, actually ran did. a little. That's exactly right. Yeah, Trump ran a little worse in 2020 than he did in 2016. Um, Minnesota was a microcosm of the country. The Republicans held the state Senate. Uh, they they gained seats in in the state house, although they didn't capture it. And the Republicans uh, flipped a uh, a U.S. House district, uh, making the state four four instead of five three Democrats. So Republicans in general had a pretty good year in Minnesota, but uh, President Trump underperformed. It was the same pattern. He actually did better in rural areas than he did four years ago. He did well then. You know, he's improving on a very strong record, but he underperformed. He's worse in the in the suburbs, and, and I don't see any explanation for that except the one that you point to, which is that there's a there's a certain subset of the voters who are happy to vote Republican, uh, happy to vote for conservative policy. But who just plain didn't like uh, Donald Trump? Yeah, and I, I think that's 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 what we saw across the country. And and I know there's lots of talk about you know disenfranchisement and stolen elections and you know illegal votes. And and look, I'm sure there are those things did occur to some degree. But I think the the bigger piece, and I think last time you and I actually talked, we talked about you know I said Trump fatigue was one of the reasons I think he lost. You know, you know, essentially seven weeks ago, I made that that comment. And you know, when you now peel back the data that we have. It, it bears out that, you know, there are enough voters in you know, enough places that didn't want to see him back, though they loved his agenda. And so they voted Republican delegate, but 42,000 in three key states didn't vote for him and he lost the White House. And I, and I think that's probably the best, you know, a little of parsimony, right? The simplest one. And to me, that's about as simple as it gets. Yeah. And I think there was plenty of voter fraud going on as well. But there's no doubt about the fact that that Trump's 
personality uh, was was a big issue and, and for many people a negative issue. And so one of the one of the uh, questions for Republicans is how do you hold the people who like Trump? Because there's a lot of people who like that personality uh, and keep them from drifting away while you're running a, a nominee who, who doesn't carry some of the baggage in, in other people's minds that Trump did. The key for Republicans in 2024 is to is to keep the Trump agenda, the Trumpism without Trump if they want to make sure they take back the White House. And, and I think, you know, that's where Mike Pence, uh, Nikki Haley, uh, Christy Nome, Mike Pompeo. I mean, there's a good list of very strong candidates that we could put up in 2024. All right. We'll be back with more from Matt Mayer after these messages. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We are talking with Matt Mayer of Opportunity Ohio and the Spectator. And Matt, I want to I want to shift gears now and talk about a piece that you've got up at uh, Opportunity Ohio that I think is is so on point. The, the title of it is uh, Trump Heavy Lifting on Foreign Policy, a Gift to Biden. And, and one of the things that you say at the very beginning of this piece, and it's something I've been, I've been saying for a while, I think it is so true, talking about Trump's uh, America first approach. And, and I can remember, uh, Matt, when Trump started using that phrase, America first, and, and the Democrats carried on like it was a scandal. You know, like, oh, this is terrible. And I'm saying, are, are you kidding me? Oh, America, yeah, yeah. I mean, America first. That's the job description of the president. You know, absolutely. I remember that. Oh, this is jingoistic and nationalistic and he's going to take us to war. And, and he just kind of missed the whole point, which is, no, he's going to get us out of these long winded wars that really didn't gain an advantage to us. He's going to make sure that, you know, whether it's it's foreign policy, it's trade negotiations. He's going to put America and its workers first. And it's interesting because if you go back to his uh, first you know, inaugural address, he actually specifically even says, and I expect every country that we deal with to put their country and workers first. That's that as they should. So it really wasn't a America first approach as much as it was a sovereign nation. We're going to put our sovereignty ahead of you know, supranational organizations, and we're going to expect other countries to do the same. And we'll have, let's see what happens at the negotiation table. Well, that's right. And his job as president, not of, you know, France or Turkey, his job as president of the United States is to work on the uh, for the benefit of American citizens. And that's what he's done. Well, as you point out in this piece, uh, Trump has left behind a really strong foreign policy legacy. Let's just kind of walk through some of the areas of the world where that's true. Yeah, well, look, first it starts in the Middle East. I mean, you know, if he were a Democrat president, it would be a no-brainer that he would be getting the Nobel Peace Prize next year uh, for the work he's done with the Abraham Accords to get, you know, these various uh, Arab countries to cut peace deals with Israel. Um, and, and, you know, I expect there to be more countries uh, to, to join that movement. But that is a significant element that has brought more stability into the Middle East uh, because, you know, look, you know this, John, the Iran deal empowered the Shias, uh, both in Iran and Iraq, that created greater uncertainty and, and real fear among the Sunni Arab nations as well as Israel. And so, you know, Trump's approach to really pull back from the Iran nuclear deal and to try to, you know, put some put some heft behind the, the Sunnis that are, you know, counteracting the terrorist uh, thugs in Iran 
was really a big deal. And to get those peace deals with Israel is enormous. Uh, and again, he should get a Nobel Prize. He won't because Republican presidents never get Nobel Prizes, uh, only Democrats presidents. No, that's exactly right. Another uh, area of foreign policy where Trump has been very strong is standing up to Russia and in part doing that by reinvigorating NATO. Yeah, and it's fascinating, right? For for four years, we listened to the left extreme Russia collusion, and he's in the hands of Vladimir Putin. Boy, you know, if you have a brain and you step back for a moment and you, you connect the energy independence in America that we achieved, which undercut the petrostate that is Russia. It is only a petrostate. That undermined Putin in a very dramatic way. His fight to stop the Nord Stream 2 pipeline coming out of Europe uh, to, you know, to get around Ukraine and direct send gas to Germany only created greater dependency uh, on Russia and Europe. And, of course, as you know, the irony is here we are funding NATO. We are essentially spending American tax dollars to defend Europe while it spends its money on social welfare programs for its people. They and, and the whole point of NATO was, uh, was to defend against Russia. At the same time, the Germans are cutting a gas pipeline deal with the Russians that creates greater dependence on Russia. So it, it, there's just a logical inconsistency there. And I think Trump, you know, movements to make NATO stronger are going to bear out and give great fruit to, to Biden as NATO seems to want to shift from Russia to China, which probably is a good decision. Well, speaking of China, there is another area where after decades of of I, I th- you know, I didn't understand this when Trump came on the national scene, Matt. I was a little slow to figure this out, I'm afraid. But Trump was right about this, that that for a long time, American administrations had really been selling us out to China. And China had been making oh. off with our intellectual property. They had been engaging in all kinds of unfair trade practices. And we just were supinely going along with it. Why? Because a lot of our companies had the benefit of super cheap, virtually slave labor. And I think it was Trump that really kind of blew the lid off that. No, absolutely. I mean, look, I, I understand the theory that, oh, you know, if we, are, if, we, if we play nicely with China, it'll democratize and, and become a, you know, a, a, a kind of Western thinking nation. But that, that's just it, it, that's not that's not the way China thinks. It's a 5000 year thinking country. They play three dimensional chess. Right. It, it's for them. It's domination uh, is what they're looking for. And, you know, in places like Ohio, I mean, we literally had steel plants that were taken apart, bolt by bolt, beam by beam, put on ships and taken to China and reassembled there uh, along with the jobs. And, and that gutted the, the Rust Belt places, including Wisconsin, Minnesota, you know, Michigan, Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, Pennsylvania, did great damage to our, to our economy. And all the politicians on both the Republican and Democrat side just simply said, oh, but boy, we're going to we're selling products to the Chinese people, one point three billion. And, and oh, we're, we're, we're going to normalize them. They're going to come come into the, you know, country, the great nations that, that treat democracy and and uh, and liberalism well. And, and they just were wrong. And Trump really pushed back on that. And, I, you know, you and I know we're not big fans of tariffs. But if you have to use tariffs in the short term to get China to the table, to get long term relief, then I think we have to, to, to see that that's what Trump was actually doing. And it was working until the Wuhan pandemic really threw, threw a curveball into the American economy. I think that's exactly right. And staying with trade, another thing that Trump did was to tear up NAFTA and replace it with a much better deal, the United States-Canada-Mexico trade agreement. Absolutely. I mean, even Joe Biden had to grudgingly admit that, that the U.S.-Canada-Mexico uh, agreement is better than NAFTA. And again, you know, Bill Clinton is the one who pushed NAFTA through. 
right? And and he is also the one who pushed China into the WTO that that ended up gutting us. And it, you know, and, and Joe Biden voted for NAFTA. It was only Donald Trump who said, "Wait a minute, this this NAFTA thing has crushed the the manufacturing segment of of, of America. We've shipped all these jobs to Mexico. Now we're just importing the finished products. That why is that good for America?" And 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 push back aggressively to get, I think, the right kind of restrictions on. Mexico and Canada. We'll see whether Joe Biden is that smart. Matt Mayer, thanks for being on the Dan Prof Show. We'll be right back after these messages. Black hole sun, won't you come? Wash away the rain. Black hole sun. Listen to podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. In my opinion, uh, America's response to the COVID-19 epidemic has been a disaster. Uh, I think that a couple of things have been done right. I think Donald Trump's uh, blocking of travel from China way back in January, when nobody knew what was going on, uh, was, was a good move, even though it was heavily criticized at the time as being xenophobic or something. I think that was well done. And I think the removal of um, regulatory uh, restraints um, and in working with uh, private sector companies to produce a vaccine in record time, literally one-fifth of the fastest time a vaccine has ever been produced and distributed in the past, uh, that was a remarkable achievement. In between, I think almost everything that we did was wrong. I think the shutdowns were wrong. I think the mask mandates were wrong. I think it's becoming ever clearer that those things just don't do any good. Uh, they, don't, they don't even slow down the spread of the virus perceptibly, let alone have any significant impact on the ultimate spread of the virus, which is actually a, a totally different question. So I think what we've seen is, number one, the, the uh, efforts taken to, to uh, combat the virus, supposedly, on the basis of an emergency, which got declared in almost all 50 states, not quite, have essentially failed. But but there's a worse problem, too, and that is the precedent that has been set. The idea that governors can declare an emergency and on the basis of that, of that declaration start issuing executive orders like stay in your house unless I give you permission to leave is stunning. I mean, it departs with all historical precedent in the United States. We've never, never seen government authority wielded like this. And I'm afraid it's set a precedent. And I'll tell you where we're going to see that precedent next. And it may be at the federal level, although constitutional support is hard to find. It may be at the state level. And that is the climate emergency. It's an article of faith on the left and among Democrats that that the Earth's climate is an existential issue and we're all going to burn up if uh, if a lot of drastic measures are not taken. And there's some commonality with the uh, with the COVID situation in that the reality is that the measures that have been proposed have been proposed won't do a thing. You know, will not impact the Earth's climate to a degree that even the most sensitive instrument could even detect. But that's not the real point. The real point is that there are people in the world who love to exercise power over the rest of us. And now we have discovered that a simple declaration of an emergency is enough to justify endless executive orders that, that, that constitute a, an absurd intrusion into the details of our private lives. I'm afraid we haven't seen the last of it. 
And I'm afraid that a, a Joe Biden administration with the environmentalist left now emboldened may very well declare a climate emergency or encourage governors to declare a climate emergency. And on the basis of that supposed emergency, begin issuing executive orders along the lines of what we've already seen. Like, for example, nobody can drive his car more than 10 miles in a day without government permission. Just an example of the kind of of order that you might issue if you seriously think there's a climate emergency. So that is something that I'm afraid we are going to have to be watching for as we welcome the, uh, the incoming Joe Biden administration. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline, filling in for Dan tonight. And we are joined by Carol Markowitz, columnist at the New York Post. Carol, thanks for being on the program. Thanks so much for having me. Carol, you've got a column at the at the New York Post, which is uh, titled, How Cancel Culture Keeps COVID-19 Lockdown Doubters Silent. Uh, let's let, let's talk about that. First of all, cancel culture, that might be the phrase of the year for 2020. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but what, what, what do we mean by cancel culture? So I'm specifically referring to people's livelihoods um, being targeted because of a fairly innocuous opinion. Um, cancel culture is not just disagreeing with somebody on something, but it's taking that next step and taking it to their boss, for example, and threatening the company that they work for uh, and, and sort of really going beyond. And so when I say cancel culture, I just want to make it clear, I'm not talking about like somebody who's mean to you online, like everybody gets that. Um, and I don't think that we can really do very much to stop that. But what I'm specifically referring to is if you point out the emperor has no clothes with a lot of these COVID regulations, you could literally be targeted at your employment place. And that's really what's so scary. Yeah. And there's a couple of things going on here, Carol. That's the worst of it. I, I totally agree that that kind of going after people in irrelevant personal ways is, is really scary. But the other way you get canceled, and this really applies to, to debate over, over COVID is you just can't get your opinions uh, or, or your data uh, read right. on, on social media. I mean, if you on, on, on YouTube, for example, if you post something that disagrees with the recommendation of the World Health Organization, which is, by, is not yeah. by any means covered itself <laughs> with glory, right, and the right, COVID right. thing, but, but, you, but if you try to post something that disagrees with them on anything, yeah. on any basis, well, uh, yeah. you'll, you'll get deleted. Well, what's, what's funny is that well into the summer, the WHO was still saying that the only reason to wear masks is if you're around somebody who is COVID positive. So, you know, it, it's funny that that sort of become the guideline because for a very long time, they were saying masks are not necessary. And it's almost like they got pressured into saying masks are necessary because they really held on to that. No, no, you only need to wear masks if you're around sick people thing for quite a while. Oh, that's exactly right. And like CDC, the World Health Organization has changed its mind from time to time, kind of made things up as it goes right. along, which is okay. You know, as, as organizations get more information, uh, right. there, there are times when they should, they should change their minds, should change their right. advice. But Absolutely. that just highlights the importance of, 
of free debate and dissemination of, uh, of, of facts. Well, that's exactly it. And I would say that I'm fairly moderate on whether, you know, what we should do about COVID. I, wearing masks in stores seems very logical to me. Wearing masks outside seems a lot less logical to me. But you can't have that argument. It has to be mask up and stay home and that's it. And there's only one way to have the conversation. Um, and, and that's really what the problem is to me here. Also, I was in March calling for schools to close when we didn't know what was happening and schools around the world had closed. And yet uh, my husband had stopped going into the, into Manhattan to work, but my kids were still going to school and that made no sense to me. So, uh, you know, I, again, I, I feel like I've changed with the facts and it's okay to do that. And once we learned that kids weren't, weren't um, majorly spreading this thing, you know, in the beginning they thought that the kids were super spreaders. And so once we found out that they weren't, uh, it's okay to change your position and say, well, and now I think schools should be open. Um, and it's scary how people are not allowed to do that because there's only one acceptable answer for everything. And it's only the one position you're allowed to take. So in your column in the New York Post, you, you, you talk about a, a reader who, who wrote to you. And I'll just quote here. She said, mm-hmm. thank you so much for speaking out to open schools. I can't do it myself for obvious reasons. I completely agree with you about opening schools in September, but I'm afraid I'll be targeted at my job. And this is what you're talking about in terms of cancel culture. Mm-hmm. You know, this right. mother would like to speak up on behalf of, of opening the schools. And by the way, our children are just being devastated by this. I mean, the damage yeah. that's being done is unbelievable. And yet, there's only one acceptable side to this argument. Right. Right. That That's it. And I've got dozens of, if not more, um, messages like that, because I've been writing about this for a while. I, so as I said, I, I, in the beginning, I was at the forefront of closing schools. And then once the data came out that kids weren't uh, the major infectors, then I quickly switched to, we need to focus on open schools. This is the priority. I don't know how anything else can be the priority except for schools right now. Um, and so since around May, I started writing about how important it is to get schools open and how insane it was to me that, for example, in New York, Governor Cuomo put schools in the very last open category. So there was a question of whether or not they'd be open in September. Um, So all of this is just, it's all part of the same thing where you, you can't actually say this anymore and you can't if if you if you say this then you want teachers to die and if you're if you don't want to say everybody should stay home all the time then you're not taking covid seriously i'm taking covid seriously my my family and i get regular tests to see extended family we we are extremely careful we social distance we do everything that is you know required scientifically of us we just won't do crazy things that make no sense and i think that's where the line has to be drawn well, and, and, and you have to look at both costs and benefits. Now, I'm, I'm a skeptic mm-hmm. when it comes to lockdowns and masks. I mean, I study these data yeah. carefully, and, and I can't really find that either lockdowns or right, wearing masks right. are having any, any significant benefit. But I'll tell you what, what is undeniably true is the, is the costs, the human costs mm-hmm. of, of particularly yeah. the lockdowns. And when they shut down the schools and they go to all remote learning, the percentage varies from, from place to place, but something like 30 or 40% of the kids are just gone. They don't log on. Right. They don't participate. They don't, they don't listen to lectures. They don't take tests. They're just gone. And I mean, what right. we are doing well, to a yeah. generation of young people is inexcusable. Absolutely. You know, I, I have a five-year-old. He's in kindergarten. Remote kindergarten is not a thing. It's just not. And, 
we're continuing on as if this is something that we can make work and we just can't. And, you know, my big concern is that schools don't open in September either. A lot of people are very optimistic about the vaccine and I keep pointing out, well, they haven't even started trials for vaccines for kids under 12 yet. So how are schools opening in September? And I I feel like there's a lot that we need to face that what we've done with these lockdowns has been so harmful and so wrong and just hasn't worked. Um, and again, back to the cancel culture thing, you can't face it because you're not allowed to say it. And, you know, back to the masks also. I live in a very leftist neighborhood in Brooklyn. Uh, in March, masks were stupid. Everybody was was posting on social media how, how dumb it was to wear masks. And suddenly it became, it went from masks are dumb to masks are mandatory overnight. And the irony is it's kind of like 1984. I mean, the, the, the official line changes, but whatever it is, whatever it is, you can't right. disagree. So another quote from your piece here at the, uh, at the New York Post, you write, one liberal mom who frequently engages me online anonymously told me she's afraid of having her livelihood targeted for speaking out on schools. Quote, I will not use my real name and identity because it is widely known that the activist community purposely baits people with racially charged statements for the sole purpose yeah. of trapping someone and reporting their content to an employer. Uh, this is this is cancel culture, and I mean, it is really uh, sinister. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I was born in the Soviet Union. I feel like I've seen this before. I, I've, I've watched, you know, I've heard the stories from my family before about how there was only one right thing to say. And if you didn't say it exactly right, then you could be targeted. And we watched it happen all over the country for the last few years. It's, it's scary. I'm afraid for these people. I really am. And what I've said a number of times is so people say to me, like, well, if this cancel culture, why aren't they coming after you? Uh, and I say, well, there's only so much they can do to me. I'm, conservative media people, conservative writers are sort of outside that circular firing squad. What are they going to do? Call the post and say she wrote something bad? Well, they know that. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that for those of us who can speak up should, and we have to protect the people who feel like they can't. And we have to get them to a point where everybody can speak their opinion without having their livelihood threatened. You know, you you make the point in your column, too, that one of the mantras here is believe in science, you know, follow the science as if science were kind of a body of dogma, like the sayings of Chairman Mao or something where you can look up. What's the right answer? And of course, science is anything like that. Science is a method. And what science demands more than anything as a method is freedom is open inquiry yeah. and open open debate and, and discussion. And it's kind of ironic that science really is what these people are trying to squelch. We know that the numbers don't support these kinds of closures, but we're going to do it anyway. And we're only going to do it in some places because we feel like it. And it's crazy. It's really crazy. All right. We will be uh, back with more from uh, Carol Markowitz of the New York Post after these uh, messages. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We are talking with Carol Markowitz of the uh, New York Post. And Carol, before the break, you said something that I didn't know, 
which is that you were actually born in the Soviet Union and came to the United States as a young girl. Tell us a little bit about yeah. that. So, uh, yeah, I was born in the Soviet Union. I was born in Russia. Um, and I grew up with the the serious stories that came from my grandmother and my parents about how it was to have your opinion stifled and how you not only had to say the right thing, you had to like say it in the correct way with the correct sincerity. And uh, it, it was, it's really scary. It's really, really scary. Um, I've, I've seen so many things in the last few years. And the funny thing is, is that I used to kind of dismiss people like, oh, the United States is becoming the Soviet Union. And I'd say, oh, that's a crazy thing to say, you know, like, of course not. Uh, but in the last, especially in the last year, it's been kind of wild to watch that exact kind of like emoting needs to happen in the right way. And, you know, as I said earlier, I feel like a lot of this is right now left on left circular squad, that they're sort of just doing this to each other and conservatives and people who are right of center are outside that conversation and outside that circular firing squad. But it won't be long before we're all in on it because that's just how it goes. It spreads and, you know, having to say the right thing and or, or else is something that gets enforced. And it's it's scary to watch. You know, Carol, over the years, as you know, I've been active on the Internet since, I guess, 2002. And, and before that, too, as an activist writing in newspapers and magazines as kind of a hobby. Um, but but uh, over the years, many people have said to me, oh, you're so brave. You know, you're so courageous. Right. And, and I would just say, oh, yeah, well, thank you. But what I was always thinking to myself is, are you kidding me? I mean, there are brave people in America. They're, they're like fighting in Afghanistan. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But for, for, an, for the idea that it is courageous for an American right. to say what he thinks, it always seemed to me to be absurd. I mean, of course I can say what I think. Everybody can. But I've been yeah. stunned. I've been stunned. And what we've seen over the last years, uh, last year, you know, the idea that the governor of a state can issue an order that literally says you must all stay in your houses, except to the extent that I give you permission to go out and, and to see yeah. Americans just obey. I mean, I, I'm shocked at that. Right. I've also I've been so shocked at it. And, you know, what's even worse is watching places like in Europe. Uh, protest these kinds of things and, and in America that we just haven't seen those mass protests. I think people are so compliant and it's it's been really eye-opening and, and it's funny because you have like Florida, for example, has become sort of like the, the promised land of Florida where they get to do whatever they want and their cases are in line with other places and so they are not experiencing this you know mass death that people keep assuring us is around the corner if we just don't listen to the Democratic governor of our state. Um, and it's it's crazy that we've allowed this to happen. It's really hard to watch. I really thought Americans would rise up. I thought, you know, even in in liberal areas, I thought when they took away schools, I was like, no, parents are not going to stand for this. And then parents completely didn't do anything. They did not. They completely didn't didn't do anything. They they just let it go on. And it was only small pockets of activism by parents that, you know, was happening at all. So it's been really disappointing. It's been really disappointing. There are a few beacons of freedom, as you mentioned. Um, Florida is one. I was in Florida for four days just a week ago, and I mean, it was uh, it was a real breath of fresh air in more ways than one. Right. Normal life going on, restaurants open, bars open, you know, normal activities. Yes, mm -hmm. there was a certain amount of mask wearing and so on, but a totally different feel from what we see in my home state of Minnesota, for example. 
Another one is South yeah. Dakota, my home state of South Dakota, you know, where Governor Kristi Noem on, on constitutional grounds has refused to issue executive orders. Um, and but and and like and like uh, like Ron DeSantis in in Florida has been subjected to unbelievable abuse from right. people who never noticed her before the Washington Post the New York Times the Associated mm-hmm, Press mm-hmm. you know I mean it's 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 really amazing how the powers that be uh, line up uniformly on the side of really of totalitarianism. Yeah. Right, and it's the groupthink that's so disturbing because it's it's just it doesn't give any air to. Um, any any disagreement and it doesn't allow you to say wait this makes no sense why are we doing this um, people are hurting by this why why would we continue with these policies that make no sense and are not helping like how does California you know with a straight face continue lockdowns there was a, a great headline in Politico last week which was like California has run out of reasons for why their lockdowns are not working <laughs> and it's like yeah they've run out of reasons for why lockdowns are not working because lockdowns don't work and that's it it's over lockdowns are over politicians just need to face it you've got a piece in the New York Post uh, this pandemic has politicians treating the public like children I'll just get there there's so many examples of this you know and we've been talking about some of them but here's another one dr. Fauci uh, has now openly yeah. acknowledged, yeah, 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 I said some things that weren't true, but it was what people needed to hear at the time. You know, I gauged right. where the public was at, and I changed my story. I said things that weren't exactly true, but, you know, I did it I did it for your, for your benefit. Right. I, I find this shocking. I think it's so damaging. It's extremely damaging that, to, to, that he admits that he lied about various things like masks and our... Um, what numbers we'll need to have herd immunity. I, I feel like people are just, they're hurting and they're tired and they don't see their families and they don't, they're not around people they love. And it's just a very dark time. And to have these, these officials lie so openly, um, it's been hard. And like the hypocrisy from these politicians has been doubly hard to watch them do things that, that we're not supposed to do or have Dr. Burks go see her parents because they're struggling. Well, yeah, all of our parents are struggling. Or, or um, Gavin Newsom and, or Kevin Newsom, you know, having oh, dinner yeah. with the lobbyists at the French Laundry. Right. What is it? $800 a plate or some darn thing. And But right. I think there's a, there's a deeper point. Hypocrisy, obviously, and we've seen that over and over from these politicians and frankly, especially from some of the more draconian Democratic politicians. But really, I think the more important point is if Gavin Newsom really believed that socializing in a restaurant uh, in a group outside your family without wearing a mask uh, posed a, a, a severe threat of death, you know, which is what right. he which is what he keeps what saying. If he believed that, he wouldn't do it. And it's the same with all these yeah. people. And the, the fact is yeah. they are imposing rules on the rest of us that they don't believe in. Exactly. I've compared it to sort of the climate change activists who, you know, sail on their yacht by themselves. Like if they really believed, like, they wouldn't do it. And I think that the, the hypocrites, the COVID hypocrites, and I've kept a running list on Twitter, um, have been also just damaging to their own cause. If they really think that anybody is listening anymore, they're not. Um, and the point that I make in the piece about how politicians treat us like children, again, I, I feel like I'm fairly moderate. I'm not saying that COVID isn't scary. And I have an elderly mom and elderly in-laws, and I'd like to protect them. So, for example, for Thanksgiving, our whole family got tested in advance and we were very careful in advance so that we could be together. And it would be so much more helpful if politicians would say, look, here's a way to do it in a safer way. You want to see your family? This is how you do it. Instead of saying, no, just don't see your family. Don't see them for a year. Don't see them for two years. 
it's not going to happen. Um, I, I think people can't live like this. And if they had better guidance from their elected officials, it would go a lot further to containing this thing. All right, Carol Markwicks, thank you for being on the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, thanks, Carol. That was really fun, really interesting. Thank you. That was really great. All right. Have a, have Thank a good you day. for having me. Yep. Bye-bye. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We are joined now by Charles Lipson, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at the University of Chicago and a regular commentator at Real Clear Politics and other sites. Charles, thanks for being on the program. Absolutely. My pleasure, John. Charles, you wrote a piece um, uh, called uh, Who Would Want to Be Joe Biden's Attorney General in The Spectator? And I want to talk about that a little bit. Uh, Tell our listeners, if you would, what are some of the issues that an incoming Attorney General is going to have to wrestle with? There are two different kinds of issues, I think. One are the big policy issues, many of which split the Democratic Party um, and split the country. So uh, you've got to preside over a department that's going to go back to being very aggressive on divisive issues, for example, of race. Uh, And the issue there is how do you discover discrimination? is the fact that uh, every member of a mathematics department at Princeton or whatever is white, is that prima facie evidence that there's discrimination, or do you have to prove it as we Americans normally would uh, by showing that there was some discrimination in the process of choosing those members? And uh, Eric Holder and previous Democratic administrations have uh, taken a position that the outcome, the fact that rich suburbs are primarily white and so forth, has to be remedied, uh, that it's evidence of discrimination. So their whole uh, immigration is going to be a big issue. And the fact that Joe Biden will be doing a lot of uh, uh, trying to navigate between uh, Republicans and a narrow uh, in the Senate and a narrow majority in the House and uh, party activists who are very much on the left makes that a hard job. But the really hard job will also be how to handle these big investigations which go into Joe Biden's family. Um, if, um, if an attorney general stays hands off on that and lets uh, the existing investigations go forward, remember there's not been a special prosecutor uh, but lets the current the the current um, U.S. attorney for Delaware who's doing this remain in office and continue his investigation, then there is a real danger to the Biden family. If he replaces him, it uh, it would, uh, if the press were honest, be a um, be a Saturday Night Massacre kind of issue. The press isn't honest on this, but it's nevertheless a big problem for any incoming AG. 
It seems to me that the problem is really even bigger, Charles, than a lot of people acknowledge. For this reason, it's always referred to as, you know, the Hunter Biden scandal, the Hunter Biden investigation. But the reality is nobody ever bribed Hunter Biden. I mean, Hunter Biden is a drug-addled, barely employable non-entity. You know, uh, you don't you don't put him on on the capable of being admitted to the best law school in the country, Yale Law School. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. But, you know, you don't you don't put Hunter Biden uh, on on your board of directors if you're your Ukrainian natural gas company, despite the fact he doesn't speak Ukrainian or nor anything about natural gas. You know, the, the point is, you're not bribing Hunter, you're bribing Joe and, and nobody's but, dumb yes, enough. But 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 if Joe Biden continues to maintain his claim that he never knew anything, it's implausible, of course. Or that if his fingerprints aren't found anywhere at the crime scene, then uh, it's just inconceivable that either Hunter or James, Joe's brother, will flip on the incumbent president. So there has to be some kind of unindicted co-conspirator information, and if there's not, it looks really bad, but I don't see how it takes out uh, the president. In fact, even if his fingerprints were there, Nancy Pelosi would do everything in her power to to prevent any change. Well, that's certainly true, uh, Charles. We've got just one minute left in this segment, but you yeah. make another point in your in your column here. I want to just touch on briefly, and that is there's going to be a lot of pressure uh, for the DOJ under Joe Biden to spend its time investigating every single thing Donald Trump ever did. Right, do you think we're going to see that happen or not? I think you may see uh, a lot of – you will continue to see investigations at the state level in New York and so forth. I think it's a really bad uh, idea, not because of Donald Trump, but because of what it it does to our whole political system. It, All right. We're talking with Charles Lipson, and we will be back with more after these messages. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We are talking with uh, Charles Lipson. And Charles, I want to uh, uh, shift gears now and and uh, talk about a little bit different topic that, that begins with a piece that you wrote way back in November at The Spectator, and the title is, Are Trump's Lawyers Big Enough to Back Their Claims Up? We can now fast forward, I guess, from uh, November 20th to uh, just about uh, the end of December, and what, what, how would you answer that question at this point? Two letters, no. Um, they, um, part of the problem, which you know better as a lawyer than I do, is how hard it is to resolve big claims like this in a short period of time, that's unfortunate, but it's just the nature of things. Uh, so uh, another problem is that they were trying to get at something that was really a bad structural reform of our system. It may have been necessary during the COVID crisis 
but it's not necessary going forward, and that's massive mail-in voting uh, in states that have no experience doing it and a lot of incentives uh, and history of, of fraud. So that's those are big problems. They were compounded by the fact that Trump's legal team was making the most the largest possible claims that they could and time after time losing in court, um, including, and this is very important, losing before judges that Trump himself had appointed. Um, so it wasn't possible for Trump's uh, uh, base to simply say, oh, these are old Obama judges or Clinton judges or something, even George W. Bush judges. And they were just prejudiced. So I think that um, that the the short answer is: were his uh, lawyers big enough to back up the claims? No. Was there fraud in the election? Almost certainly there was. Was it bigger than in the past? Yes. Almost certainly that's true. Could you prove it in this short period of time? No. And as someone who spent 40 years doing doing litigation, I mean, it was always obvious to me that in 60 days or whatever, there's no way in the world that there's a court process that would allow you to uh, to prove uh, the, the claims that you'd have to prove to, to get the result of the election uh, overturned. I mean, it just couldn't be done. But they also seem to have been sort of weirdly unprepared. I mean, everybody knew that with 100 million plus mail-in votes, there's going to be a lot of fraud. I mean, and yet they were scrambling at, at, at after the fact and, and getting Rudy Giuliani involved and Sidney Powell is in and then she's out and and what's his name Lynn Wood I don't know what what's going on with him I mean didn't that, didn't that remind you of the first days of the Trump administration when they came in and they started issuing orders and they weren't really prepared to go to the airports and figure out how you stop immigrants from coming in from the countries and so forth. And I actually think that the two problems are related. Trump was an outsider. He didn't have uh, – he wasn't plugged in when the uh, administration began. Normally an administration – look at Joe Biden's administration, right? You appoint the number three person – who was in the Defense Department to be the number one person, or the you know you appoint people. Yeah, he's just have. recycling the Obama administration. Oh, absolutely. That's exactly what you do. Trump didn't want to do that. He was an outsider. He wanted to overturn. He had defeated the two biggest uh, political dynasties of the last thirty years: the Bush and the Clinton dynasties. He and. He wanted to do something very fundamental in Washington, and that left him with very few resources. Who does Hillary Clinton rely on when they try to twist and turn all the election laws? The most experienced election lawyers in Washington, Mark Elias and others. Trump doesn't have that base, and uh, he relied on people who might be – uh, competent lawyers in other regards, but they're not uh, election lawyers, and it's a very specialized field, and they were ill-prepared. I would also say that the Republicans were ill-prepared for how to deal with all the mail-in voting, uh, and uh, it's hard to gainsay them. It, this was an un- usual year and 
how would you know how to prepare for all this in advance? Well, Republicans also agreed to some ridiculous things, like in Georgia, where they have the untended drop-off ballot boxes. You know, I mean, it's just an invitation. How did the Republican administration allow in Georgia allow all of that? I, I don't. I don't understand. I don't understand it either. It's ridiculous. So, so here we we are where we are. Right. And now on January 6th, Congress is going to assemble and the Electoral College vote will be presented to Congress. There are still some diehard Trump fans who are saying, uh, don't give in and let's let's rally some Republicans in the House and the Senate to refuse to accept the Electoral College votes. What, what, what do you make of that? Well, let me set it in a larger kind of first of all, it will fail. Uh, I mean, we all know that this has been tried before. Uh, actually, repeatedly in, in elections since uh, over the last uh, two decades, and it always fails. Uh, uh, and it would require several big states to really change. It's just not going to happen, and it would throw the whole constitutional system into uh, into a, uh, a a big uproar, and people would be out in the streets. It, it would be a mess. It's not going to happen. But I think what the larger context here is that we are now seeing uh, ele- the legitimacy of the winner of our elections being called into question, not just at the moment, but over time. And I would say that's why it's very important for uh, President Trump to attend uh, the inauguration of Joe Biden to in effect, say, this election is over. I endorse the legitimacy and the rightfulness of the new president coming in. And, but I got to say that the Democrats who prance around uh, displaying their moral virtue on this, they spent four years saying that Donald Trump was not a legitimate president. That was the basic message of the Russia hoax that he was not legitimate. Uh, as a president. All right, Charles Lipson, thank you so much for being on the program. We're going to run to a break and be back with more. Listen to podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Before the break, we were talking with Charles Lipson, who is a professor emeritus of political science at the University of Chicago. And Charles concluded by making the point that that the peaceful transition of power is critically important, uh, that it's that it's important that 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 we as citizens recognize the legitimacy of an incoming president, whether we agree with him or not. And he's hopeful that President Trump will try to uh, smooth that transition. Uh, and and that Joe Biden uh, will be viewed as the legitimate uh, president of the United States. And I can't disagree with that. There's no doubt that we want to live in a country where people recognize, acknowledge, and accede to the results of the elections. If, if we don't, then we're kind of in a state of perpetual warfare almost. Uh, but there's a, there's a serious problem, though. Um, the, the Democrats never did accept the legitimacy of Donald Trump as president. Uh, he's not my president. 
was a mantra. Resist was a mantra. Before he was even inaugurated, they were talking about how to impeach him. And for four years, they carried out the Russia collusion hoax, this complete fabrication, total lie. And they knew it was a lie. It was paid for by Hillary Clinton's campaign, for goodness sake. In January of 2017, the FBI interviewed the guy who supposedly was the number one source for the dossier, and he said, I never heard of most of that stuff. And what I did hear of was just some rumor I picked up. I don't know anything about it. And the FBI knew that in January of 2017. Nevertheless, the Russia collusion hoax went on for four years. It was a complete fraud. We're now faced with something that's that's quite different because no matter how gracious Donald Trump may or may not choose to be, and I, I don't know that he will attend the inauguration or encourage his supporters to to really recognize Joe Biden as president. But regardless of what he does, there's a deeper problem. And that is that it may well be the case that Joe Biden's election was based in considerable part on voter fraud. Now, I'm not sure we're ever going to be able to prove that because uh, most fundamentally because the same lax procedures that make the fraud possible, for example, lack of of, uh, controls on mail-in voting, also tend to make it impossible to prove after the fact. I don't know how you identify the and pull out of the stack, you know, the ballots that that have been counted that were that were fraudulent. Nevertheless, over the next couple of years, a lot of people are going to be investigating what happened in a number of these key states. We all know which ones they are and are going to be writing books about it. And some people are going to be arguing that there was indeed massive voter fraud as reflected in some of these midnight ballot dumps of 100,000 votes, all of them for Joe Biden or, you know, whatever those numbers are. And 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 the, the argument over whether Joe Biden really won this election is going to go on for a while. And it needs to because voter fraud is a huge problem. Ballot integrity is very, very important. And if the fact is that our system has become uh, massively subject to fraud, we need to know that so we can correct it. And so I think that no matter what Donald Trump does, Joe Biden is going to be dogged throughout his administration by serious doubts about whether he really won the election. And and the reason is simple. There are serious doubts about whether he really won the election. And maybe the other side will prevail. Maybe the facts as they come out will tend to support uh, the, the idea that the election was legitimate. That's it for tonight. Hope you've enjoyed the Dan Proft Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline. Hope to be back again with you soon. This is the Dan Proft Show.